Hello there, I'm Patrick Struff. Welcome to M&A Masters, where I speak with the leading experts in mergers and acquisitions. And we're all about one thing here, that's a clean exit for owners, founders, and their investors. Today, I'm joined by Mark Gartner, Head of Business Development at Clearlight Partners. Based in Newport Beach, California, Clearlight Partners is a long-established private equity firm dedicated to the lower middle market. And at the expense of showing my bias, I would say there are fewer places on this planet that are more beautiful than Newport Beach, California to have your office situated. So, Mark, I envy where you are. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Thanks, Patrick. Now, before we get into Clearlight, let's set the table. Tell us what led you to this point in your career. Yeah, good question. Um, as I look back, I, I would point to a series of decisions that all seemed like good ideas at the time. <laughs> I would say in most cases they were. Um, but I started off in investment banking, like a lot of folks who get into private equity, first with a boutique out of Memphis, Tennessee, and really valued that experience uh, working for a firm called Morgan Keegan, which uh, a while ago now got bought by Raymond James. So fewer and fewer people are familiar with the Morgan Keegan name. Uh, but had a wonderful experience there. And that was really my exposure to the M&A process. And then um, I joined a firm most people are now familiar with called Houlihan Loki, their industrials group, and focused on plastics and packaging transactions to kind of round out uh, almost three years as an investment banking analyst. And then was looking for a buy side job. And I interviewed with a lot of firms, mostly in Chicago, which was where I was at the time. And at one point, I think I had cold emailed Clearlight um, not knowing anything about the firm, not knowing anything about Newport Beach. I'm actually from Cincinnati, Ohio, originally. Uh, and uh, they responded. So every now and then a cold email works, or it, it did <laughs> back in the day. This is back in 2007. It was meant to be. It was meant to be, yeah. And um, they brought me in for an interview to be a part of this uh, proprietary deal sourcing program they wanted to develop. They were looking to recruit ex-investment banking analysts who could sort of eat what they killed and really be on the phones trying to source transactions by calling business owners directly and then uh, work on those deals once you kind of brought them uh, in-house. And, and to me, that was very entrepreneurially exciting at that stage of my career to kind of live the full life cycle of a private equity transaction. And frankly, everything that they promised that program would be, for the most part, became true. And so uh, I was at Clearlight for four and a half years was kind of romanced away to another fund up in the Bay Area for two and a half years to focus on building them a deal sourcing program. And then was welcomed back to Clearlight in 2014 for my second tour of duty, so to speak. And, um, you know, have been focused since that time on uh, building, you know, what we think is a, a high functioning, you know, institutional grade deal sourcing engine to bring in uh, as many deals that fit our criteria as possible. Yeah, that's part of the, part of the magic there is, You've got these great theories on what you can do with targets is identifying the targets and then, you know, making, making a good enough case for that target to want to be acquired. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I think what that kind of touches on a little bit, uh, or maybe I'll just touch on it, is the, the evolution of how the sourcing strategy has changed. You know, we started out uh, looking for proprietary deals, you know, just kind of smiling and dialing. And at that point, uh, this is probably 13, 14 years ago, you could do that because not as many funds were doing it. Then business owners started getting bombarded with calls and they just kind of stopped returning phone calls. So the strategy had to pivot. And then we switched to kind of intermediary coverage, you know, getting to know all the relevant investment bankers that were uh, producing deal flow that, you know, we found interesting. And there's 
over a thousand of those entities out there. And so that was a very real process to get up to speed on the population of intermediaries out there and, you know, adopting a CRM and using data to help, you know, guide our activities. So that was a, a very interesting exercise. And then, you know, other funds adopted that strategy as well. And so one of the things you alluded to is making the case for a company or an industry. And I think one of the really exciting strategies that's working today is defining a thesis for a given industry, sort of calling your shot, if you will, and uh, and then going out and approaching companies in a, in a more intelligent way, in a very purposeful way, given that you've already said, I want to be in this space. You're a company whose door I'm knocking on quite intentionally. Would you like to talk about a deal? And we've we've discovered that it actually works pretty well. And at the risk of getting ahead of ourselves here, let's back up a little bit and let's talk about clear light and then and then we can go in into that. But, you know, with Clearlight, tell me how it was founded and then describe the focus that they have and you have because we're both in the same area here. We're looking at the lower middle market as opposed to middle market. Yeah, great. Yeah, so Clearlight's uh, origin story is is pretty unique, I think. Um, you know, we actually grew out of an operating company. There's only so many funds that can lay claim to that. Um, this is about 20 years ago. Our founder, uh, was running a residential security business on behalf of a Japanese publicly traded company uh, who had bought this security company in Orange County, as it turns out, and it was uh, effectively a turnaround situation. Um, our founder had advised the parent company previously as an attorney, uh, incidentally had learned to speak fluent Japanese in his spare time in between undergrad and law school, um, and actually studied, I believe, in Tokyo and was able to nurture on that proficiency in, in the Japanese language. And so he'd earned the trust of this Japanese entity to run their U.S. operation. And so I think at the ripe age of 31, uh, despite a career in law, he was uh, uh, installed as CEO uh, of this home security company called West Tech, West Tech Security Group, which, if I understand correctly, was around $35 million of revenue, was on the verge of losing money, and it was his task to turn it around. And over a 15-year period, through a combination of uh, organic growth and acquisition. He got it up to maybe $250 million of revenue, uh, and it's sold to a strategic buyer for about $300 million. And rather than send the money, the proceeds money, back to Tokyo, he was entrusted with that capital to continue investing in other U.S.-based businesses via a private equity structure. And so Clearlight was established in the year 2000 with that inaugural fund of $300 million. And we've subsequently raised a second and a third fund, each $300 million, uh, with every dollar we've invested to date coming from that Japanese entity. And so having this sort of single LP structure kind of, in a sense, makes us a hybrid between, say, a family office mm -hmm. and a private equity fund in the sense that we can invest over a longer time horizon if need be, because we're not subjected to the fundraising cycle. Um, yet we are staffed, motivated, incentivized, structured to deploy capital routinely, you know, not by hobby, which is unfortunately how family offices have developed a reputation. So uh, it's been really the best of both worlds. And uh, they've been an amazing partner, you know, for now over 20 years. Well, it speaks to the success because there's just the trust and, you know, and that's how these successful funds create and lead to other funds is you've got very happy uh, investors that are, you know, they trusted you with a little bit of money and now they can trust you with more money and they just keep rolling it, rolling it over. Yeah, that's, that's a great way to think about it. Yeah, and, and so tell me about the targeting the lower middle market. Uh, the reason why I ask is that I personally believe that the lower middle market, the, the owners and founders there are the real entrepreneurs that are in a space where they've created value from nothing and just need to get to that next step. 
And the unfortunate thing is I think a lot of lower middle market founders are underserved because they don't know channels and access points that organizations like Clearlight Partners provides. Yeah, it's a good question. I, I think as an investor, what you're really looking for is inefficiency, you know, in the market. And as funds get larger and have to chase larger and larger deals, that that market, the competition for those deals creates a very high level of efficiency. And so you have to ask yourself, is that where there is the most opportunity? Uh, maybe I'm biased because I've spent you know, most of my time in the lower middle market. But, but I think about how a lot of private equity funds, for instance, don't have dedicated deal sourcing teams, are not using CRMs, are not comprehensively canvassing the universe of intermediaries who produce, you know, the deals they're looking for, um, are still establishing kind of um, EBITDA thresholds of 5 million when you can find really great companies kind of in that three or $4 million EBITDA range. And to me, that just really presents a lot of opportunity. And to your point, um, business owners in that size range probably have been underserved by equity capital providers, or at least there hasn't been a focus on them. Uh, and I really think that's changing. And you know, some of the best <clears throat> deals, or at least a couple of deals I could point to that we've done that have produced really nice returns have started with a very small, very modest starting point. So yes, there's more risk to starting at a smaller scale and the companies might need to be invested in and have management teams built out and um, have proper systems kind of put in place. But if that's all done correctly, it can produce a lot of opportunity. So I'm a huge fan of the, the lower middle market. You just have to know kind of what you're getting into and, you know, learn the playbook, if you will, to create value. So I'm, I'm a big fan of it. Well, and you started, Clearlight Partners started as an operating company. And so let's talk about, and we referenced this earlier, where you have a value proposition to make to these, to these target companies as you are actively going out there talking to them. What, what's the message that you deliver that's different? What are you bringing that's a little different? Yeah, I mean, as it relates to our operating heritage, I think sometimes between you know, operators and investors, there can be kind of a communication disconnect. You know, let's say you've got investors who have only been investors or who were investment bankers and then became private equity investors. There's a manner of speaking uh, that might not be compatible you know, with how operators kind of describe their world. And, and there also could be a lack of empathy for what it takes to execute strategy. And so if you look at our firm, starting with the, the senior most leadership, these are people that have had P&L expertise. Uh, and that story kind of ripples throughout several people on our team who've run companies before, in some cases run companies for private equity funds, and in even some cases further, uh, started companies themselves. So it just lends itself to, I think, a more productive discussion and kind of bridging that communication gap and, and really understanding what it takes to execute strategy. So that's a huge part of what we offer when you couple that with kind of the single source of capital and the longer investment horizon we think, you know, in a fairly commoditized private equity world right now, um, it, we think it makes us different. But it's just all a matter of getting in front of those owners so we can actually tell the story. It's important that you talk about the empathy that you have because there's a danger if you're investor-only focus, you're going to fall into that trap that cynical people describe private equity. And that, that cynical thing is four words. It's just buy low and sell high. <laughs> and, and, you know, that, that, that's not comforting for, for owner founders out there. And so it's great that you guys are stepping out. And that is different out there from, from a lot of other, sp other folks. Why don't you give, give me an example of, you know, one of the deals you've done or one of the success stories you've had. Yeah, I think one of my favorite stories to tell 
involves us getting into the fitness industry, which is important for a couple of reasons. One, we had never done a deal in fitness previously, and this was a franchisee. And this is before franchising was as hot of a space as it, as it has become. And so, you know, one of our partners, you know, really deserves a tremendous amount of credit for having the vision uh, to get into the industry and to get into this deal. And so this franchisee in question was a Planet Fitness franchisee. Um, they had 12 locations in two markets. They were generating healthy EBITDA. Uh, the unit economics were very compelling. And if you know anything about the Planet Fitness model, it's all about value. So it's the low cost model. And this was also at a time, I think, before the world became so focused on recurring revenue. But fitness is yet another industry that is um, based upon recurring revenue that perhaps wasn't appreciated for it in the way that, say, uh, a security company was, you know, back in the day or has been. Yeah. And so, you know, uh, we took um, took a bet on on this particular business and it just paid off so well. You know, we got into a couple of additional markets, so bought new territories, um, opened up clubs organically, um, basically didn't acquire a single club in our journey from 12 uh, locations to north of 60. And this is over a five-year period. Wow. And there were some really great things that, that happened during that time. Um, built out a management team. You know, the, uh, the, the president of the company was given the opportunity to assume the CEO role. So that transition was done effectively. Uh, a former Clearlight uh, employee was actually able to step in as the CFO uh, of the company, which proved invaluable, kind of given his understanding of kind of how we analyze businesses and just the strong rapport we had with him. And, you know, the, the business, uh, the exit of that deal generated basically the best financial return in the firm's history in a five-year period, it, it just exceeded all expectations. So it's just one of those great success stories where uh, everything lines up well uh, and you make a huge difference uh, in the lives of, of people at that company. And it was just a really rewarding journey to observe. Well, and that breaks the stereotype of uh, fitness centers being not the greatest investment in the world. Uh, so that's, that's uh, really, really telling. I'm just thinking from personal experience, just seeing things in the Bay Area where centers are coming and going. Um, with with uh, this thing, were you dealing in just one geographic region? Are you regional or are you cross-country? Uh, in that case, we had pretty disparate uh, locations. Um, I believe we were in San Antonio initially and uh, in Nashville, I want to say, and got into uh, Sacramento and then uh, Pittsburgh and then also Canada. And so literally all over the map. Um, and I know there's a strategy that people like to embrace of building kind of regional density uh, and the, the view that that kind of enhances valuation or kind of positions you best to enhance valuation. But in this case, we, we benefited just fine from having disparate locations. And it was, uh, again, it was a great run. Well, and let's transition into just a little bit broader on the profile. What's the ideal target profile that you're looking for? Yeah, and this has evolved over time. I mean, if you can believe it, back when Clearlight was getting started and we were trying to figure out a strategy, we even did a few venture deals, <laughs> some of which that actually uh, panned out okay, but then we pivoted to kind of traditional middle market, you know, LBO investing, back when LBO was still a term that people used. Mm -hmm. um, but I think, you know, we've done deals buying from other private equity funds, but our passion uh, is to invest in founder family-owned companies, has been for a while now. I think that presents a lot of opportunity for professionalization, for investment into the business that, you know, not to the fault of the, of the business owner, it's just many business owners, you know, get their business to a point where they're generating three, four, five, six million of EBITDA, life is pretty good. You know, why do I need to take the risk of, you know, over-investing in the business? 
uh, or, or taking risks with the business. And so we think that presents a lot of opportunity. Um, we like situations where the business is in an industry that's healthy and growing. So there's a very clear and easy to understand macro story supporting the growth of the business. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't really invest in story situations or turnarounds. It's usually kind of up and to the right uh, organic industry growth that's beating GDP for some compelling and sustainable reason. And then from there, it's underwriting the business and try to understand, you know, is this a company that we're excited about where, you know, we can understand the risks and box those accordingly and, um, you know, proceed with the management team to, uh, to hopefully, you know, double, triple EBITDA. And that's where you guys really add the value too, because the skill set for owners and founders where they're killing themselves to get to a point where they're three, four uh, million EBITDA, the skill set to go up to 10 million EBITDA is a completely separate uh, set of skills. And oftentimes you've got to bring in other people and you can risk it by yourself and try to do it yourself or find partners, you know, in private equity who have not only done it before, they've done it in your industry before and, and they've got the roadmap and, and, and you've got the resources and the knowledge uh, to, to bring to bear. Yeah, and then the other point I should have made too is we certainly welcome the involvement as shareholders of the founders insofar as they want to retain equity alongside us. That's actually a better situation than buying 100% of someone's company. Um, and it's that you know proverbial second bite of the apple, which everybody talks about, but when it works well, it does exactly what it's supposed to do. And the second bite of the apple can be you know extremely rewarding. So yeah. that, that's when things go well. We like to see that happen. Yeah, to talk about rolling rolling equity into into future funds. Yeah, we we came across that where we had a, uh, a founder owner sold sold his company for twenty million, retained rolled five million twenty five percent into the new into the new firm, and a few years later they sold the they sold the new company for twenty five thirty million dollars. So his his. 25% actually was worth more than the entire amount of his company previously. And they took that and rolled it on in. And I just, that's a win, 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 which uh, I'm, I'm surprised more of those stories aren't out there right now. Well, and it's also a good vote of confidence, frankly, when the owners want to retain equity. <laughs> you know, it's a little scary if someone wants to throw the keys at you and kind of disappear yeah. in the sunset. So well, um, in those, in those cases of disappearance and so forth, I, I do want to ask you, you know, in your involvement, uh, both with Clear Light Partners and before, tell me about your experience with rep and warranty insurance, good, bad, or indifferent. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I was reflecting on this a little bit because in my seat on deal origination, it's not a product that I've had as much exposure to. I've mostly been an observer of market trends and listening to it come up as a, as a topic uh, of discussion. And I was doing a little research on rep and warranty insurance because I was interested about, you know, where the product came from, where it's been. Um, apparently, the product has been around since the late 90s. And it was created, as you might expect, for funds that wanted to free up money from escrows. Uh, to get paid, you know, more at closing versus having some percentage of the purchase price being locked up for 12, 18 months, whatever it was. And so it's, it's easy to understand why a product like that would be created. It wasn't really embraced uh, until maybe 2007, 2010, because people were accustomed to doing things the way they'd always done them with, you know, escrow being some set percentage of the purchase price and so forth. Um, I'm told that rep and warranty insurance really gained traction due to a, a law firm, a fairly prominent law firm who got behind the product and was really recommending it to their clients. And so this is, like I said, maybe 2007, 2010. I would say my extreme awareness of the product 
you know, really started to come into view upon my return to Clearlight, maybe 2014 or so, you just started hearing everybody wanting to talk about it. And I understand the statistics correctly. This is a little anecdotal. I've heard that in private equity backed deals, maybe 75% of deals at this point are utilizing rep and warranty insurance. Um, from my perspective, it has a couple of advantages, certainly to the seller. You know, you get more of your consideration paid to you at closing. Um, from a buyer's perspective, there's also advantages. You know, if you have to go after a claim, you know, you're dealing with an insurance company as opposed to your new partners in the deal, <laughs> which I, I can imagine would create for some awkward conversations uh, as you're, you know, in the early innings of a transaction trying to uh, trying to build a company together as uh, friendly, friendly colleagues. So um, it's very clear to me why the project has, you know, become increasingly in fashion. You know, certainly in the re some of the recent deals we've done, uh, without citing any specific examples, I know that it has been something that's been utilized, and I would expect that trend to continue. Yeah. Well, the the biggest development out there is that rep and warranty initially was a product. The reason why it didn't gain traction was it was prohibitively expensive. And it was limited in what it covered and what it didn't cover. Uh, in the technology sector, particularly, for years, it would exclude any IP-related reps, which is, is a, a deal breaker in Silicon Valley. Um, but because of good success and good traction and a copycat industry, other insurance carriers would get into the mix. And, and with competition comes two things, a broader improved product and lower prices. Today, rep and warranty can now be brought to bear for a transaction as little as $10 million, where the minimum price, you know, all in including uh, underwriting fees and taxes and everything, uh, a $5 million rep and warranty policy is under $200,000 total costs. I mean, rep and warranty is now available for add-ons, whereas it didn't make a lot of financial sense when the, uh, the pricing was probably a, a multiple of where it is now. And it's not only less expensive, it's simpler to secure. And so that's where we wanna get the message out, particularly to the lower middle market, because two years ago, if you were under $100 million transaction value, you probably wouldn't be eligible for rental warranty. Now that's not the case. So it's great being able to have it out there where it really does make a difference. Um, now, Mark, from your perspective, and I'm, I want to go to an article you just posted not too long ago uh, called Never Let a Good Crisis Go to Waste. You had, as we've been mired in this COVID-19 pandemic settle in place on again, off again in California, especially, but what do you see out there for M&A going forward? And you had a great piece. We'll link it to our, to our notes here, but uh, tell, tell us what you see. Yeah, I know. I wrote that piece. I was just tired of all the negative headlines. I mean, it really weighs on your consciousness. Um, and so I said, what's the contrarian thing to do here? Let's talk about how the glass can be half full amidst all of this. I mean, one of the alarming statistics is now an estimated third of our population is suffering from anxiety and depression, if not both. I mean, that's it's like 110 million people, you know, uh, wandering around their house, you know, depressed or anxious because of COVID. It's like, we all need a little bit of cheering up here. So I tried to uh, sprinkle a little bit of that optimism through through the article. And then one of the quotes that I love that I just discovered in writing the article was something John F. Kennedy apparently said. And he said, when written in Chinese, the word crisis is composed of two characters. Uh, the first character represents danger, which is pretty easy to understand, but the second represents opportunity. And I think therein 
lies the opportunity to find the silver lining amidst all of this. And so, you know, I was reflecting on, you know, what are some of the sectors or themes that are surviving, if not thriving, you know, kind of amidst COVID, because there are some green shoots, if you will, or some you know, very nice signs of life amidst all of this. And I think it's important to focus on those. So I just kind of talked about a couple of them. I mean, recurring revenue is an easy one to point to. That's interesting in its own right, has been for a while, not a new idea, but recurring revenue generating businesses are doing, for the most part, you know, pretty well right now. Similarly, and, and I'm saying this having just invested in an IT services company, companies with remote monitoring capabilities where you don't have to be physically present um, to deliver some good or service uh, are doing great as well because you can do what you need to do from the safety of whatever coronavirus-free location you happen to be in. Um, and those companies are doing well. Um, you know, I look at companies like our ice cream business, uh, and I point to things that I'm calling small consumable luxuries, where there's like a high ROI on happiness. You know, you buy a $6 milkshake or whatever it is, and that's, that'll cheer you and your kids up, get you out of the house. You know, so there's all sorts of things like that that I think are doing okay. Um, I look at like at-home convenience services, having your groceries delivered. So, I don't know, all these things that have given rise because in large part our behaviors have changed should be well positioned. So, you know, I'm thinking about specific sectors that might be kind of interesting. You know, I mentioned the depression and anxiety issues. I point to outpatient behavioral health, you know, sitting with a therapist and talking through your problems. There's a lot of people who need help. And some of these issues often go untreated. And I think at the same time, some of the stigma around behavioral health is coming off. Um, and I think there's a lot of people that could benefit. So that feels like a classic do well, do good industry that has been largely untapped by private equity for various reasons. And it's pretty interesting. Uh, express car washes, fabulous industry, hiding in plain sight for way too long. You know, high margin recurring revenue. You don't have to get out of your car. Very COVID friendly. You know, really nice business that kind of plays with our kind of multi-unit retail strategy. We'd love to do something there. We've talked about fitness. Uh, there's no way around it. Fitness is going through some hard times right now uh, for the obvious reasons. But as soon as people can get out of the house and feel comfortable exercising again, it's just going to go gangbusters in my opinion. Um, and I think that it kind of correlates interestingly to the depression issue because fitness, you know, offsets, you know, kind of gloomy moods. You know, you get out there and you generate some serotonin. And then I mentioned kind of IT and other tech-enabled services for the reasons I mentioned before, recurring revenue, remote monitoring. I think those businesses should do pretty well too. So, you know, not an exhaustive list. There's others. Some of the stuff is pretty obvious, but, you know, trying to find uh, or trying to view the class as half full anyway. There has been that trend pre-COVID to have fitness being brought from the, from the outside into the home, particularly with Peloton. Yeah. I have a feeling we've been in our home so much. I think that trend is going to go back. And uh, just the desire of being around other people and being in another facility away from the home is, is a real good idea. Mark, how can our listeners find you? Oh, gosh. Yeah. So I'm on the Clearlight website. I'm, um, I think, reasonably easy to find there. But people are welcome to email me, call me uh, anytime, early, often. We love hearing from people who want to chat about any of the topics we've discussed on, in this podcast or and maybe they know a company or are running a company that could benefit from capital at this point, even if it's early, it's always good to have those conversations to kind of get to know people. So um, feel free to visit our website, uh, email addresses on there, phone number, and give me a call anytime. And, and without showing any bias again toward Clearlight with, with our other guests and our other colleagues and partners out there in the PE world, I will say though, if anybody is interested, uh, have, a, have a chat with Clearlight and see if you can swing a quick visit to their offices because like I said, 
There are few fewer places on this planet that are as beautiful as Newport Beach. So, Mark, an absolute pleasure being here. We're gonna we're gonna talk again. All right, thanks, Patrick. Enjoyed it. <laughs>